we've been celebrating Advent as a family. Now, Advent, of course, is this moment in the historical church calendar where the four weeks prior to Christmas, we fix our attention on the coming of Jesus. And we think about what the coming of Christ brings into the world. And there's four words that Advent is built around. The first word is hope. And then we look at peace. And then we look at joy. And today we look at love. Now, we looked at hope. I'll bring you all up to speed. We looked at hope the first week. We looked at Romans chapter 5. And we discovered something about hope. It's easy for us to say, I need more hope in my life. But the reality is, there's a process that the scriptures would outline that create hope in us. It actually produces hope. It grows in us. And when you look at the process, how many have ever been in a high-pressure situation? Okay, they could be at work. They could be on the freeway. It could be in Target yesterday. We were walking through King Supers yesterday, and my wife, she's like, so look, it's Christmas. You have to be nice if people are being dumb. And I'm like, did I do anything? She's like, no, it's just a public service announcement. But high-pressure situations, sometimes it's in our home, sometimes it's, it's in the workplace, but it's those moments where life is pushing in on us. And the scriptures would teach in Romans 5 that hope is actually produced in us when, in those situations, we refuse the tendency to try to run away from them or change them, and instead we sit in trust and we just fix our eyes on the Lord and say, all right, I trust you with this process. And the scriptures would say that when we do that, hope is actually produced in us. So we come out the other side more hopeful. We looked at peace. I love this word. The, uh, the word in the Greek means to connect to something. There's three things that it connects us to. Prosperity, health, and oneness. Now, oneness means completion without fragmentation. It's an idea of being restored. That that is God's desire, passion, and heart, is to connect us with peace. And we looked at Colossians 3 and realized that Paul makes a statement in Colossians 3. He says, let the peace that comes from Jesus rule your life or govern your life. And it's so easy to quote that and go, yeah, I want the peace of God to rule my life. Well, Paul actually outlines the process. He said, there's a process for peace and what it looks like is to live a life that's built out of the scriptures, that's in alignment with the way God says to live. And when we live that way, the byproduct is that peace governs our life. I would say it this way. What Paul reveals is that we are in control of our own peace. To the level that I'm willing to trust Jesus and live the way he says to live, I see peace. I thought about, as I was studying through this yesterday, I'm like, you know, it'd be fun to just go, look, give peace a chance. Try it. Try living the way he says to live. Try saying to yourself, I will not allow any attitudes that don't come from him if it's contrary to him. And I, I will challenge this. You will see peace released into your life like never before. And then we looked at this word joy last week out of Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah will say to the people of Israel, they're in the midst of a difficult situation. They're not a fan of what's going on. It, the, the temple's been restored, but it's nothing like it used to be. And so their memories were much greater than their current reality. And, and so there's a sadness and there's a sorrow. And he says to them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
Now this word joy here in the Hebrew, being a pictorial language, is made up of two images when it's written. The first image is a wall, the second is a door, and what we learn through that is joy is an access point to supernatural strength. And Nehemiah will give four things. He says, there's two things I need you to do, and there's two things I need you to not do. The first one I want you to do is I want you to fix your attention on the Lord and honor him, celebrate him for his goodness, for his provision. How many know that praise and worship in those kind of moments is a choice? I can always choose to focus on his goodness. I can always choose to focus on the things he's brought into my life, or I can choose to focus on my reality. And this is one of the things Nehemiah says don't do. Do not obsess and fixate on your reality. Don't look at your circumstance and allow that to control your worldview. Instead, in those moments, make a decision to choose praise. And there's another thing he says to do, and in the midst of that, I want you to look to the world around you and be generous. Move into this place of meeting the needs of others. Have you ever noticed that when you meet the needs of someone else, it fully takes your attention off yourself? It's actually a spiritual discipline to serve. To just say, you know what, right now where I'm at, yeah, I'm not in a great headspace. I'm going to have the maturity and the discipline just going, nope, that doesn't matter. And I'm going to move into changing people's lives. And Nehemiah will present that as the alternative to this thing he says don't do, which is the big takeaway. The word he tells them essentially is do not complain. Do not let a critical negative thing come out of your mouth about your situation. And we struggle with that because we feel like our opinions count. And the only way anybody's going to know my opinion is if I say it. How is God going to know how I feel about this situation if I don't tell him? But see, Nehemiah will say, it's, if you choose to do that, you're robbing yourself of strength. Because complaining erodes joy. Okay, we could just go home. We're good. We're ready. <laughs> but this fourth week of Advent, we look at the word love. Now, when we started this process, I would have said, love's going to be the easiest thing to teach. That one's no big deal. The other ones, I'm going to have to figure out how, how in the world do we present this. That hasn't been my journey. Actually, I spent the majority of the last couple of weeks fairly baffled on the idea of what it looks like to actually try to teach love. And the more I thought about it, the more I came to a conclusion that perhaps one of the reasons is that in our culture, in our day, and in our time, we use this word love to describe a myriad of emotions. We use it to describe romantic, sensual desire. We use it to describe pizza. We use it to describe our hobbies. We use it to describe friendships. We just use it in a, in a variety of ways. And I've found myself, maybe you're like me. How many have said recently, I love Christmas? How many when you were shopping said the opposite? <laughs> and I thought about it, I do, I, I say that a lot. I love Christmas, I love this time of year. And then, but the question is, what does that even mean? And if you really break it down, what it means is I derive great personal enjoyment out of this season. It makes me happy. And so maybe, perhaps, love is hard for us to describe because if you think about what we just talked about, the way we view it in our culture, the majority of the ways we talk about love is rooted in self. How many would rather give a gift than get a gift? Okay, how many are in here and be like, they're all liars. How many would rather get a gift? <laughs> how many just really love getting gifts? It's okay, come on, be honest. This is your moment. This is audience participation time. So growing up, I loved getting gifts. In fact, I remember as a, as a, as a boy, 
For me, Christmas was always about, I wonder what I'm going to get. But as I grew older, I started to fall in love with this giving of gifts because I realized when I give a gift, I'm making a value statement about the person I'm giving it to. And we would know this, that the closer the relationship, the more the gift carries value. This is why, gentlemen, when you buy your wife pots and pans for Christmas, it's a, it's a bad move. Because <laughs> all it says is, I love that you feed me. And my answer is, go take classes and learn how to cook. Sidebar, for free. But we understand that hardwired into this gift-giving thing is a, a statement of value. And I don't think there's a moment in the history of the world that communicates value more than this moment we look at this holiday season. You see, John in chapter three will say this, for God so in love with the world, for God so in love with the world gave his son, his one and only son. And he begins to release value to us. And I wanna take a look at this verse this morning. There's three things that I see in it that I wanna draw our attention to. Number one, the gift of Jesus, this gift we look at, the babe in the manger. It actually teaches us what real love is. It reveals true love. This word agape here is selfless, or I have a, I have a, a, a terrible habit of making simple things more complex. Anybody else have that gift? Like you want to simplify it and all you do, and I do this a lot with, and with my boys, and my youngest son will say things to me like, that actually makes it harder to understand. You just used another word, I don't know what it means. So my way of describing agape love when I'm trying to make people understand it is it's benefacting love. And when I said that to him, he's like, what is that? A benefactor is someone who, who, who will give on their own account for your benefit. So what we see in this word agape is it's selfless love that lives for the benefit of another. And this is the word that John will use in chapter three. For God so loved, so selflessly wanted to give to humanity. You see, authentic love, one of our difficulties is all we do is describe the feeling of love, but authentic love is not a feeling at all. Authentic love is an action. Authentic love is actually a behavior towards someone. It's a sacrificial action. And what I see is the way we talk about love is almost always rooted in our personal advantage. We love the things, the people, and the circumstances that benefit us. But what I want to focus our attention on this morning is that is not how our Father loves at all. 1 John chapter 3 calls us to a mental exercise that I want to lead us through. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. He uses the word agape here again. What marvelous love. Look at it. We're called children of God, and that's who we really are. This phrase, just look at it, is the mental exercise. He challenges us. The word means to lean into, to inspect, to consider. So he wants us to, to look at this love. What marvelous love the Father's extended. This phrase, what marvelous, in the Greek literally means from what origin? Where is it from? And what he teaches us in this is that this love that we're talking about is supernatural. 
You say, what does that mean? It means it can't be learned from a human being. And we struggle with that because we want to believe that authentic love can be found in others. We want the needs of our hearts to be met in relationships, in hobbies, and in philanthropy. But the writers of scripture will teach something very, very different. John will say God is love, therefore authentic love must be learned by experiencing him. What marvelous love the Father's extended to us. Just look at it. We're called the children of God, and that's who we really are. You see, this word called children, this word phrase is kaleo in the Greek, and it means to call out. But it's an interesting word because it's, it, it doesn't just mean to holler at somebody. It actually means to name someone. And there's hardwired in the definition the idea of something being transferred. And the, the revelation that, that John gives here is that this love is not just supernatural. It's actually identifying. And when he speaks it over us, it changes our very DNA. That we move from being not sons and daughters of God to being children of God. And, and he says it's who we really are. What he's saying is it's not just a statement he's making. He's not just saying, hey, you're my kids now. He's actually saying, no, I did something for you and I transformed you and changed you. You are now my child. And it means that through this gift of Jesus, the babe in the manger, it's incredible that God, God loved the world so in love with humanity that he gave his son. That it, in that gift... He transforms us. He says, you're my child. I think that gift was for a purpose. And I want to talk about that. Because it was the Father's gift that would make it possible for us to experience him as his children. What do I mean? I have two boys. They know Greg Sanders differently than anybody else will. Because whether I like it or not, there's a measure of love because they're my sons that is different. I can tell you I love you, love pastoring, but I will never love you the way I love them because I, don't, can't, I can't figure out how I love them how I love them. This is why marriages have such a hard time. They're like, I love my kids, I just don't like my spouse. It's because you have to choose to love your spouse. You don't have to choose to love your kids. It comes out of you. Jesus will say it in Luke 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, you naturally know how to love your kids. Well, you don't naturally know how to love your spouse. You have to choose it. That's free for somebody, not, not really part of the teaching. <laughs> you see, his goal is that we would learn to sit with the Father. We would sit down with him. We'd experience his love. It would shape us. And we would then become people who would shape the world because we began to love them the way he loves us. The second thing I see that this gift reveals, this gift of Jesus, God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son. It reveals our unique value. Because this gift makes a value statement to humanity. Just laughing because they're killing a bug. I thought that was a funny moment for that to happen. <laughs> it's a spider. Spiders aren't allowed to live here. Sorry. 
by giving his son to the world, he makes a value statement I want to talk about. How many would agree with me if I said this statement? You have to do, okay, take a deep breath. You can do this. Audience participation moment. I have to move in church. Bad enough to maybe raise my hands and worship. How many would say you agree with this statement by the showing of your hand, God is perfect? Man, we need to have a theology class for the rest of you. How many would agree that a perfect God cannot sin? The definition of the word sin is to miss the mark. Therefore, a perfect God cannot make a mistake, correct? Logic intact. Okay, now flip to business with me for a second. Business is built on the idea of exchange and value. It means that I'm going to exchange said finances for said merchandise because I think said merchandise is worth said finance. The gift of God's son to humanity makes a value statement about humanity. It makes a value statement about you and about me. What it says is that he considers you as a worthy trade for his son's life. Let that one sink in for a second. Because it's so easy for us to compartmentalize it and say, yeah, he just saved people. The Gospels will reveal that he is the God who would leave the 99 for the one. Now, in, if you look at Hebrew culture, the way that they will communicate is through picture. The leaving of the 99 for the one isn't a, a valuation of, well, as long as there's 100, he'll go after the one. But as soon as it goes to 101, that one doesn't count. What it is intended to do is, is, is be a juxtaposition of pictures. He'll leave the masses, he'll leave the myriads of people for the sake of one, because this one is finite specific. It means that Jesus' life, according to the Father, was worth our life. That is crazy. The other thing I see in this gift of Jesus in the manger is that it reveals God's intention and his goal for us. John 3.16, if we go back to it, the back half of this verse, for God so in love with humanity gives his son, there's a reason, there's a purpose. He says, so that everyone who believes in him, in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And when we read this, it's so hardwired in our nature to fixate on the will not perish. We're like, okay, cool, I get out of hell, heaven's where I'm going. And that's all we think about. But the, the biggest revelation in this is this phrase, eternal life. It literally means perpetual vitality, perpetual richness, perpetual fullness. That what God says to humanity, here's my goal, here's my intention for you. I gave my son out of my love for you because I wanted you, humanity, think about this, think about this statement to the world. I wanted you to live in a rich, full, vivacious life. Paul will talk about this lifestyle. He'll say what happens when we connect with the Spirit of God and, and, and we begin to walk in this relational encounter with God is that there's some things that the Holy Spirit longs to produce and begins to produce in us. And in Galatians chapter five, in the Passion Translation, I love it, it says, but the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is this divine love in all its varied expression. For God so 
love. So this divine agape, joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. That this is the Father's intention. This is his goal for our life. It's easy for us to sit here in church and go, oh yeah, I get that. I want our minds to try to wrap around the reality that God made this statement to humanity when he gave his son. To every person on the planet, he said, this is my heart for you. This is my dream for you. This is my goal for you. I want to lead you into this life. But it only happens when we learn to spend time in his love. Ephesians 3, Paul will say, and I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you learn to trust him. This word, be more and more at home. How many have ever had, uh, you know when you buy a house and there's all those weird cracks that air is coming in under the doors and you go to Home Depot and you buy that spray foam? You know, the stuff that's really sticky and you can't get it off your hands? It says use gloves, but you're, you're a dude and you're like, I'm not using gloves. And then you realize why it says use gloves. But you spray that, that foam into that gap and, and, it, and it does this amazing thing. As soon as it hits oxygen, it starts to expand. And it consumes all the space that's in that cavern. This is Paul's word phrase here. I pray that Christ becomes more and more at home. The word means to dwell, to settle, to govern. It's the idea that Jesus would settle into our hearts and begin to take over more and more and more of us. And then I love this phrase, as you learn to trust him. Because I think this phrase probably communicates the heart of the Father more than anything. The word as you learn to trust him literally means to grow in conviction. It means that what he expects is that we're gonna build a, a, a relationship. It's gonna begin with us just learning how to just follow his voice, maybe read the scriptures and go, okay, Lord, I'm gonna try it. And we try it and we put it into action and we discover, wait, time out, that works. Wow. That was way better than what I was going to do. And so the, the, next, the next time we hear his voice and the next time we find something in the scriptures that, that is a challenge to us, we're like, okay, it worked, loud. I'm going to try it again. And it, there's a systematic growth in encounter where we grow in our ability to trust him. I love this because what it reveals is a God who's secure enough to say, look, I'm not going to demand anything. I just want to present myself and say, give me a shot. I want to bring these things into your life. I want to give you a life with joy that overflows, peace that subdues, joy that overflows. Think about it. What is joy that overflows? It's joy in every situation that comes out of me because it's not governed by my situation. It's actually governed by my encounter. Yeah, that was good. I know. That's awesome. <laughs> Think about it. I'm drawing joy out of him. Therefore, no matter where I'm at in life, it doesn't inform my joy. Peace that subdues. The picture is the idea of something coming at us. So, so let's, let's put it into, if you like the ocean, think about that wave that's coming at you that's going to overtake you. And what this says is there's a peace that you're connected to that no matter what comes at you, the peace will subdue the situation. You walk out the other side and you haven't lost your peace. And we live in a day and an age where these are the things, these are the heart cries of people. We're looking so many places to find it. But the reality of what this gift for God so in love with the world gave his only son because he wanted 
to give this to humanity because he understood there is absolutely no way to learn this except encountering him. See, Paul finishes in Ephesians and he says, may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ. And though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. This word experience here means to perceive through touch. He says, I want you to have an active, real encounter with God. What I love is that what Paul is saying is actually what God's heart is for us. I want to be your friend. I want to encounter you. I wanna do life with you. And so often we would approach God with an assumption. He's not for me, he's against me. He's got a list of things that he knows I need to get right for him and I can talk. And I want us to grab on to the reality that this gift that we celebrate, this babe in the manger, was a very clear evidence of God's love for us. Because what God said is, I want to bring these things into your life. Stand with me if you would, please. See, the answer to walking in that incredible encounter is to just move into a relationship with him. And there's a myriad of different stages of growth. Maybe some of you are here and you're like, I've never really really just given my life to the Lord and said, Lord, I, just, I want to start this relationship with you and today's the right day for that. But what I would want you to hear is God made his decision to love you a long time ago. He made his decision about your value a long time ago. All you're doing in this moment is saying, okay, I'm in. Maybe you've looked around and said, I don't, I'm not living that life full of joy. I definitely don't walk in peace. My life isn't full and rich, it's difficult, it's labored. My challenge is just try it, it works. I don't know how to explain it, but a life connected to the Lord in a living daily encounter produces this stuff, and it's amazing. The harder group to touch is the group that's been around the kingdom long enough that you start getting numb to these realities. And we get so accustomed to church and the language and we've, we've ceased to be a people that are amazed at who he is. We've lost sight of the way he loves us and for us, maybe it's a time to come back and say, you know what, it's time for me to re-up and say, you know what, Jesus, I don't see those things in my life and yet you're in my life. It must be because I'm not spending time with you at a level that allows me to draw this from you.